Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Welcome to your Wednesday Weird Tale, mates. Straight from the creepy pasta vault, I bring you the Ersatz Cat by Levi Salvos, a tale with a dual meaning and an ambiguous ending. When a procedure to resurrect a cat goes semi-successfully, our protagonist ventures into the darkness with a demon as his guide, a demonic cat of all things. It does not go as you'd expect it to. Turn the lights off, mates, the sound up, and get ready for something mind-boggling. The Ersatz Cat The method goes as follows. Prepare the corpse by repairing whatever fatal injury led to the subject's demise. Keep the body stored in a dry environment of temperature ranging from 36.12 to 37.8 Celsius. Restrain the subject as necessary for the act of resuscitation. Isolate subject's DNA pattern and acquire an adequate supply of stem cell from another member of the subject's species. Preferably these cells ought to be harvested from a child or parent relation or other near relative. Create a solution of formaldehyde and... Why the hell are you writing this? The deep voice purrs from its feline frame. You've tried this technique already. It failed. I glare. You're alive, aren't you? I growl with impatience, ignoring the small creature to continue with my work. But I'm not what you meant to bring back. Mephistopheles croons from the cat's mouth, his perfectly human voice reaching a depth the house cat's vocal cords could never naturally reach. I glance at Mephistopheles' body. All hair has fallen off the animal's skin, an unanticipated side effect of the procedure. A nasty bruising scar decorates its face, where I had accidentally struck it with my car nearly two weeks ago. Faint guilt wells up in my gut as I look over the profane being who I had buried secretly in my backyard, whom I had raised again to test my theory, whose owner has plastered posters of its face on every telephone post in town, bearing the simple caption, Lost Pet. I made a mistake, I replied to the demon's taunting. I can make it work. What are you going to reanimate next, dearest friend? A squirrel? Maybe even a pigeon? Do you have any clue the error you've made in your calculations? Stop talking! I shake my head. I swear to God, I'll muzzle you! The fact that my words bother you prove that you grasp their validity. Mephistopheles continues as he stretches his hairless body out in the cellar's faint light. You've studied the biology and chemistry again, and again and again, but that was never your mistake. I think you know that deep down. I keep my eyes down on my work, not wanting to reply to the creature's mocking. Why do you keep me alive? The voice asks, from the cat's punny more. At first you told yourself it was in the interest of science that you needed to behold how my life 
would develop. But from the first time I spoke, you never looked at me with anything but contempt. I could see it clear as day in your eyes. You wanted to destroy me. You know why? Because I prove that your grand experiment failed, and that even if you perform it on whom wished to bring back, she might not return with the proper soul. I grip my teeth. So, why then do you keep me alive? Mephistopheles' charismatic voice dances happily along. Well, I'll tell you. It's because I have what you seek. Can't you just leave me in peace? I plead with exhaustion. I inhabit a cat. You could throw me into the ocean or break my neck with hardly an ounce of effort spent. I exist. Because you summoned me forth, I continue to exist. Because you allow it, I can give you what you want. And how would you do that? I snap, my voice cracking lightly. The cat stalks my spot at the desk. It climbs gingerly over a half-collapsed pile of papers that run harmlessly over a discarded pair of gloves, which I had brought to handle sensitive chemicals. Several beakers holding fluids of different colors sit behind the papers on the far side of the desk. Beneath the brick wall upon which hang a few technical diagrams I had taped up during my research. Below the diagrams, a mound of obscure books loiters with yellowing pages molding in the damp basement air. I can bring her back. Mephistopheles tells me with utmost sincerity although the cat's face remains impossible to read. At what cost? I ask grimly. No cost. I will bring her back, for no reason other than you desire it. You're lying. I shake my head. Nothing in this life is for free. What you seek is not in this life. The demon counters. It's not possible. I shake my head weakly. Without giving anything up, how can I expect to earn her back? Everything must be earned somehow. It's simple cause and effect. And why did she die? Mephistopheles asks rhetorically. What, pray tell, did she do to earn her own destruction? Sometimes, my dearest friend, bad things happen for no reason at all. But despair not, for good things can also happen equally unearned. I'm offering you a gift free of charge. All you must do is seize it. How? I moan, my desperation breaking through my distrust of the demon. It's not too hard, he assures me. Just follow my simple instructions, and you'll have your daughter back in just a couple of days. Tell me. The method goes as follows. The cat begins with clear amusement. 
First, you must kill this current body of mine. I cannot find who you seek, unless my spirit wanders on the other side. After this body's death, you must stow the corpse in your daughter's coffin. The dead cat will act as a bridge between worlds. Additionally, when you reseal the lid of the coffin with the cat within, you must take note of the exact time. I listen intently, although without making eye contact. As for the second step... Mephistopheles continues. You must bring your daughter's body deep into the woods, where there is no human within earshot. There, you will burn her body. You must watch the entire occasion, and once the fire dies, naturally, you will cast the ashes into a sea or lake where they can never be recovered. Why? Because nobody can re-enter life until all physical traces of their past life have been obliterated. I say nothing, and in my silence the animal continues its instructions. Finally, you will return to the coffin in which you sealed my remains. Within six minutes of the fourteenth hour after you close the coffin, you will open it up if you waited too long or too little or failed to follow any one step of my instructions. The ritual will likewise fail and you will only find a dead cat within the box. If you are successful, however, your daughter will be alive and well in the coffin, just as the morning of her death. That's it? That's it. The demon nods. And I must defile my own child's grave? <laughs> oh, come now. Mephistopheles laughs. Surely, if you tried your scientific little experiment, you'd have done the same. You can't make an omelette without breaking some eggs. You said there wouldn't be a price. I grumble with annoyance. Digging up a body in exchange for its life? That's not a price. That's tearing off the wrapping paper. I shake my head, looking briefly over my papers of calculations and meticulously drawn conclusions. Then I turn to the possessed cat that I couldn't even bring properly into this world. You have a deal. Excellent. Mephistopheles purrs eagerly. If you like, I can accompany you to the cemetery. Keep a lookout for you. Fine. I reply, leaving the room to fetch my shovel. All along the way, the cat follows at my heel, a clear spring in his step. The trip to the cemetery goes by without notable disturbance, although with my nerves, the short drive down the graveyard's road seemed to last days on its own. In the back, my shovel lays idly on the seat while the car cruises past the church and parks next to the green lot filled with tombstones. Mephistopheles sits on the passenger side, curiously watching the outside world. 
The cat exits the car as I do and meanders around the ground as I collect the shovel from the back. After a short, fidgety walk to the grave, I stab the spade into the soft earth just as Mephistopheles hops up onto the granite slab. While the cat watches for intruders from his perch on the tombstone, I begin digging up the coffin. Put your back into it, he taunts. I don't want to be here all night. Shut up, I bark in a hush between strained breaths. Sweat runs down my brow as I toss shovelful after shovelful of dirt out of the hole. The task quickly wears through the night, until the earliest dawn peeks up over the trees. It's heavy. I groan as I pulled up the sealed coffin, not as reverent of the event as I had expected. Exhaustion does funny things to people. With the casket out of the grave, I work to refill the hole. To erase the absence left by my removed coffin, I take several scoops from the ditch along the church's road. The process takes another unbearably long span of time, and with every passing minute my demeanor breaks down more and more. I barely manage to keep it together, even at the end as I carefully place the uprooted grass back in place to cover up any evidence of what happened. Get into the car, the cat commands as it takes off at a trot. Surely, somebody will be coming soon. After dragging the heavy box to my car, I managed to heave it into the back. Good thing your daughter died young and light. <laughs> Mephistopheles quips as I collapse into the driver's seat and look around one last time for witnesses. You're all good. Mephistopheles assures me. Just drive. Without further prompting, I steer the car back home. The shovel now sits on top the ornate box, where it shakes with every bump in the road. Again, the cat just watches the scenery, idly roll by. Back at the house, I park the car in the garage and shut the door. Once concealed, I put the coffin out onto the concrete floor. My heart threatens to pound through my chest as I run my hands over the face of the casket. You might want to rest before this next step. The cat cautions. No more waiting. With that, I lean forward to the casket. With a deep breath, I run my fingers under the lid, feeling the latch that will open up the sealed box. For just a moment, I remember shutting it, where I stood in the funeral home with my face cast down to the cheap carpeting at my feet. Choking back, Tears. I unfasten the hatch and the coffin flips open. I nearly pass out from the stench. Dear God! I gasp, tearing my eyes away from the casket's contents. Be strong. The feline comforts me lightly. It'll be over soon. Trying to keep my eyes away from her, I lift her from the casket to set her onto the garage floor. Her body feels unnaturally rigid to the touch as though it's dried into a husk. A tremble runs through my hands, and I feel light-headed as I place her on the concrete below. So far, so good. Mephistopheles says quietly, The hardest part is nearly done. Now, place me into the box. After taking a moment to compose myself, I follow the cat's instructions 
and place it in the center of the open coffin. You know what comes next? The demon asks. I kill you, I reply. I bring my daughter out into the woods to destroy her corpse, and I return to open this box in 14 hours. If all goes well, we'll not meet again. He nods. I guess, I say quietly. Thank you. I mean it. The cat doesn't reply, watching me intently. With shaky movement, I run my fingers around the cat's throat. Its bold skin feels unnervingly human to the touch, and I struggle to collect my strength. I break the cat's neck. Letting go and gasping, I pull my arms into my torso, where they wrap around me in a hug. The cat lies on the casket floor with its neck bent at a sickening angle and the slightest shade of a smirk resting on its lips. Momentarily at a loss, I just sit in the garage with silence pounding mercilessly at my ears. I choke back vomit as I stare off into the invisible distance, blocked by the barren garage walls. Eventually, the horrid rotting odor motivates me to continue my task. I make a quick note of the time, cursing myself for almost forgetting as I shut the coffin tight with the animal's remains within. After, I lift my daughter into the back of the car, trying in vain to keep my mind utterly detached from the action. Whether to preserve her dignity or to save my own skin, I cover up her remains with an old jacket from the house. Finally, I set a tank of gasoline I keep for my lawnmower in the trunk. With that all done, I open the garage door and climb back into the driver's seat. Whatever it takes, I say quietly to myself as I take the car out of the garage and down the familiar neighborhood street. A pedestrian a few houses down politely gives me a wave, which I return with a faint grimace. For a moment, I consider rolling the windows down to help with the smell, but stop myself out of fear of attracting attention with the stench. Turning my own attention back to my drive, I try to focus on keeping to back roads. I drive alongside the highway on a small frontage trail where I eventually turn off onto a dirt road that twists out into the countryside. Trees stretch up into the sky as the car turns into a wooded park area. I circle the lot a few times to make sure no other cars are present before I park. How can I get her out without being seen? I wonder aloud before coming to a simple conclusion. Glancing around the park, I hoist my daughter over my torso so her head props up on my shoulder. Then, I cover her with the jacket. All in all, it looks like she fell asleep with me carrying her. Just a little hike, I tell myself as I lock up the car and pick up the gasoline tank. After looking around briefly and picking a trail I had walked a good while ago, I step into the woodside. The trail wraps around a sizable lake, all the while going up and down small hills in the terrain. With every slope, I realize just how much the dig wore me out. A dull aching has settled into my arms, and I repeatedly adjust my grip on my daughter to keep her from sliding from my exhausted grasp. Although I try to avoid looking or thinking of my child, my attention inevitably falls to my lifeless companion. I hate having to see her prettiest white dress, the one she had fought having to wear to her aunt's wedding, the one I thought she looked like a little angel in, the fine little cloth gown that now holds her decaying body in death. 
my eyes run with dread up to her face, which has lost its innocent beauty. Her own features have sunken in and lost their color, and I can see her faint suturing over her lips where the embalmer had sewn them into a relaxed smile. Her head still lies on my shoulder, her brittle hair touching my skin. Every moment of contact makes me ill, and I have to tell myself over and over what I stood to gain. Good morning, a passing hiker greets me casually, making me jump. Uh, good morning, I repeat in a murmur, trying and failing to relax. The hiker quickly passes out of sight, and after glancing to make sure he had indeed left, I turn off the trail and walk through the taller weeds for several hundred meters until I come to a small clearing. After setting my daughter down in the clearing, I scout out the area to make sure no trails pass closely by. The lake sits close to the clearing, but I find no other areas of interest nearby. Once I'm confident of our solitude, I set up a small stack of branches under her, uncap the gasoline, and pour the fuel over the body. See you soon, sweetie. I tell my daughter quietly as I flick my lighter on and set the pyre aflame. I fall back onto my bottom as she burns away in front of me. Wiping off tears that I cannot tell if the smoke is caused, I watch the cremation with shaken nerves. Words cannot convey how long that moment lasts. I look down towards the grass, terrified of actually seeing the flames swallow my child whole. A constant wave of heat presses against me, and I clench my teeth as I hold my ground. With my knuckles white over my clenched fists, I curse having to let go of her again, even if only to bring her back to me. Even as the fire inevitably smolders away, the wretched heat never quite leaves my skin. I finally raise my vision to the sight, seeing only a mound of red glowing ash and embers before me. In time, these two lose their color and fade to a dull dew, just as the air loses its warmth in a bitter chill. Why didn't I bring the shovel? I asked myself, feeling idiotic. Knowing the lake lay only just outside the clearing, I grab a handful of ash to toss out. Upon my return, I grab two handfuls, and then on the third trip, an armful. Eventually, I removed my shirt, which I fill with ash to move in a greater volume. Nevertheless, it takes well over an hour to clear out all the remains. I throw the last haul into the lake unceremoniously, before tossing the entire shirt away, just to be certain. Six more hours, I say aloud, checking the time. After looking at the empty spot where my daughter had left me again, I spent half an hour of my remaining time hiking back to my car. Next, I spend another half hour on the drive home. Once there, I park the car outside, not wanting to open the garage door with the casket still inside. I cannot help but glance nervously up and down the empty street. After going through the house, I sit just next to the coffin in the garage. It takes every ounce of my self-restraint not to tear open the lid, knowing that my daughter may appear within. I can see her so perfectly in my mind, free from all the markings of death that I had burned away and cast into the waters. Hunger grows in my stomach, a faint reminder that I hadn't eaten since yesterday. I refuse to move from the coffin side, however, 
and watched over the motionless wooden box. Hours stretched by in an agonizing crawl. I pace around the outskirts of the garage, mumbling to myself words that I forgot even as I say them. Never in my entire life have I wanted so badly to skip forward into the future. Just a moment to buy some relief from this anticipation. In the end, I'm practically shaking. Unable to sit still for even a moment, my eyes watch intently as the time ticks so painstakingly slowly towards the 14th hour. I count it down on my lips until it comes. My heart stops. Mephistopheles instructed me to open that box within six minutes of the 14th hour after I seal the box. Those six minutes have come. I bide my time in stunned silence, terrified to look, lest I've miscounted the hours. Again and again, I check my math to make sure I had counted time correctly. I decided to let the last minutes pass just in case, getting as close as possible to the 14th hour mark. So close. The last minute comes without fanfare, and the moments fall away with unyielding certainty. I watch the final seconds as butterflies dance in my gut. I place my hand under the lid, feeling the latch where it had lay before. Although the device hasn't changed, my own emotional state bears no resemblance to the last time I'd opened the casket. Time passes through the mental mark where I place the 14th hour, and with a sigh, I left the coffin open to whatever may await me. It's her. She's alive. There's nothing there. Just a dead cat. In a box. Oh God! I gasp aloud as I grab her. Her eyes creak open as though waking from a deep slumber. She looks confused to see me. Oh God. I moan as I look at the cat's corpse festering in the center of the coffin. How can this be? I did everything I was supposed to. Every step I followed to the T. This can't be happening. I don't deserve this. I don't deserve this. I sob as I wrap my arms around her. Are you okay? She asks not understanding my emotional response. Did he lie to me? My voice changes as I come to the realization. That's it, isn't it? This was all his little game, to make me jump through those hoops, to get my hopes built up and then dashed into nothing. Damn him. I'm fine, sweetie, I reply softly running my fingers through her soft hair, still in disbelief that the ritual worked. How do you feel? And now the body's been destroyed. Even if I knew how to perfect my original procedure, there would be nothing to raise back. I defiled her grave for nothing. I dug her up and looked over her decaying face for nothing. I feel all right. She says curtly before looking around. Why are we in the garage? Am I in a box? We were playing a game. I lie quickly. Come on, are you hungry? I could get you something to eat. How do pancakes sound? I'm starving. Damn it! 
I scream, kicking the coffin over. I feel kind of strange, she says just before we leave the garage. How so? I ask with concern. I think I had a bad dream, she replied. It's like I can remember another life. My own. It was the same, but different. I don't know. The cat's ruined body sits on the garage floor, near the base of a knocked-over casket. I stomp it into mush, relishing the sound as the bones crack beneath my foot. Splatter runs up my legs as I drive my heel into its tiny skull. None of it was real, I say reassuringly as I lift her into the house. None of this is real. It can't be. Mates, this one was a doozy when it came to the ending. Pitch me your thoughts on this one. What do you think the ending of this tale is all about? There are no mistakes here. The recordings double up in a unique way to allude to what is actually taking place for our poor protagonist. Did he really bring back his daughter? Or did he dash the only chance he had at bringing her back? Also, there is something more. But I'll let you smart people dig deeper into this space. A very well written and utterly fascinating story by Levi Salvos. Now you little lovelies, it's time for my thank you mini stories, where I write tales just for those that support me. So let's dig into my own nighty titans. Maya, Felis Demonicus. The sole survivor of a town riddled with misfortune and magic. Felis struggled to live in a city where thieves leaned on every corner, and anything that lived outside the city was twice as big as a human with jaws just as large to chomp her up. It wasn't until she was attacked by three thugs that Felis realized that the very monster she was afraid of being attacked by was tucked away deep inside herself. Ah yes, a terrifying entrance into the world for young Felis. When the first thief swiped at her face, for her neck to catch the blade mid-swing, then to only have the blade ejected from her neck straight down the forearm of the attacker. Undeterred, the remaining two thieves attempted to land that killing blow, when, feeling a previously unrealized wave of strength, she began to grow firm, whilst catching the two blades in mid-air. Her eyes changed to hazel, and her skin became coarse. A roar was heard throughout the alley walls that would haunt the city from that day on and the thieves were never seen again. Felis Demonicus, the demonic shapeshifter, was reborn that day, birthed from the fires of combat. Solstra, Corpus Praemium. Tina was a dedicated woman, a specialist in her craft, one that took years of practice in getting her hands dirty with the nuts and bolts, as it were, of humanity. When you called Tina for her expertise, it will be for her passion for touching all things dead, slimy, and pungent. Having spent years as a necromancer's protege, Tina really dug, pun intended, deep into the understandings of human organ use, the power they possess in ritualistic spells, and how to use them to call upon hexes or talk to the dead. But she discovered one unknown power that she stumbled across when a rogue wizard stole from her the very first time she realized how much energy that a body can hold. Krilla, a wizard of semi-ill repute, 
intended to pay her handsomely for some silver-fanged frogs, only to steal them from her instead of paying her once they were acquired. Enter the newly forged spell, Corpus Premium, the Corpse Exploder. Have you ever seen a wizard covered in frog guts, on fire, and smelling just as bad as he looks? Well, ask Tino. She'll describe it well. After that point, the experimental spell paid off, using corpses to clear waterways, block canals, hell, even as siege weapons, Tino's talent for corpse magic brought her a second life. Hope you both enjoyed your tales today, mates. They were a mix of weird and strange with a splash of magic thrown in. Thank you, as always, for slingshotting this podcast into the future. I've almost finished my new website thanks to you, and I can't wait to showcase it. Stay tuned. Now for my awesome white tea warlords, I own cows, Bradley Brambleson. As a child, Bradley was a tortured soul, attacked by grass demons whilst young, slicing up his face, and destroyed his family crops set for the winter ahead. Spending his nights wishing and praying to a god unknown to him, reaching out to any deity or entity that would listen. His wishes landed on the proverbial ears of a small bramble that grew outside his house. This little bramble was a prince, and one totally unbeknown to poor Bradley. Upon hearing his plea, he gifted Bradley with the ability to defend himself, to call upon the brambles in the fields, the roots beneath the ground, and the trees themselves to aid him in finally defeating the grass demons that tormented his family. Waking up one morning, Bradley walked outside. Four grass demons intent this time on doing permanent damage, lunged at poor Bradley. Raising his arms up, Bradley began to feel them burn, opening his eyes to realize that from his fingertips, branches were growing, shielding him directly from the slashes of the demons and encasing them in fibrous wooden structures. From that day on, Bradley was deemed Bradley Brambleson, the keeper of the woods. To this day, he keeps his homeland safe and the pigs, goats, and cows he tends to out of harm's way. Lee Bauer, Wisp Warrior In the mists of Hellcore lives a warrior bound by endless duty, one consumed by the desire to protect and a force of justice that governs the mist-fallen forests of Hellcore. That force of strength is Lee Bauer, the Wisp Warrior. After surviving a demonic attack on his town, Lee had wounds that would last him a lifetime and prevent him from protecting the town ever again. Broken bones, missing fingers, and crippled knees and joints, all from the cruel fangs and claws of the spectral beings he battled. He saw his friends slaughtered and the wizards dueling with magic on the blackened land of his once green and growing homeland. Now, Lee sat broken, desperate, furious, and enraged. An empath wizard, one who controls the mind, could hear his screams of agony and despair echoing throughout the battlefield and knew that to win this battle, there had to be more than one sacrifice, and arguably one that had already been made. Reaching Lee, Ulas the wizard reached deep into his mind and unlocked the revenant spirit within him. Inches from death, Lee was reborn, clustered by wisps, spirits of the dead, his companions, his men, his warriors, and with a glistening radiance like no other, erupting from within Hellcore, Lee's spirit cleansed the land of all those demonic that would dare walk it. To this day, he defends Hellcore and its people, a servant to justice and a destroyer of the damned. Mates, I wanted to take a different approach, 
I wanted magic to be an assistive tool in these tales, and empowering opposed to dangerous and wacky. I hope you both enjoyed your tales. Thank you so much for supporting me, mates, as always. And of course, my old grain forces, Chad Warren, Just Heather, Paige Marcini, Peter Raffelli, Tasha Moncrief, Christina Boyd, Divided by Zero, Tristan Cassidy, and Dolphin and Cow. Folks, you lot kicked this podcast up a notch. Thank all of you for your ongoing support. I'm lucky to have all 14 of you brilliant people, and thanks to you, the podcast can deliver even better content each month. Thank you so much. Stick with me Friday, mates, for more Dracula, and I can't wait to see what path it takes from here. As always, mates, till next we meet.